morning. Thank you for having me. My name is Darren, and uh, I'm really honored to be here with you today. I love this church and uh, enjoy my time very much uh, here with you always. Uh, it is a dreary day, and we have some dreary, some dreary words for you, so I, hope, <laughs> so I hope you're ready to listen with open ears as I read some good news from the book that we love. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to this time and uh, we sit under these words, and Lord, I recognize that as uh, we sit here curious what it is you're saying to us today, some of us are living these words uh, in this season, uh, and for others of us, these words are very strange. Lord, I, I pray that whatever place we find ourselves in today, whether we are filled with weariness or we have a lot of energy, whether we come here today uh, with much sorrow or in a really good place, or Lord, even whether we come here today filled with hope and faith and trust in you or with very little or no faith at all, I pray that you would give us grace to see that in the way that matters the most, we do all ultimately come the same. Uh, with an overwhelming and an unrelenting need to hear from you, to know you, to be changed by you. And Lord, I pray that even these words would accomplish that today because we ask it in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.
Amen. Well, great to be with you. Um, hope that you invite me back after the sermon. But if you don't, I'll understand. So I want to ask you to engage in a little thought experiment with me. I want you to think about a goal or a desire that you have in your life that is multi-year, right? So we have like our New Year's resolutions, right? Um, you know, I want to lose weight this year. I want to get in shape. You know, I want the Eagles to win the Super Bowl, um, which I did prophesy, by the way, just so you know. Don't have any prophecies for this year, but I did prophesy it when it happened the only time. But I want you to think of a multi-year goal that you have. Maybe it's getting married. Maybe it's buying your first home. Maybe it's having your first child. Right? I want you to think about one multi-year goal that you have. Okay? I'll give you a second. Next thing I want you to do, I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to think about what it will feel like when that happens. Okay? And if you don't have one, that's okay. I'll talk about you later. Um, all right. So now that you have it, if you have one, and you've thought about what it will feel like, uh, according to this passage, it will probably feel less good than you just imagined. Okay? That's what he says. He says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. When you see, when you experience some things that you long for, and there, there are some exceptions, right? It will not bring you the satisfaction that you think that it will. And friends, I, you know, I was thinking about this, and so I was a pastor for 11 years, and I've walked through, I've walked through some pretty significant moments with people praying to have a child, um, praying to find a spouse, um, praying to you know, be able to get out of debt, and that is, I, I count those, um, those times, some of the most sacred times in my life. But I can also tell you that, you know, thinking through some of them, they were filled with deep rejoicing, as in many cases God heard our prayers. But I can also tell you that most of those things were not the panacea that we thought they would be, right? And, that, and that's, that's what I would tell you from my experience, and it's actually what this passage is saying. So I'll, I'll give you another example personally. So I went to seminary in 2007, and uh, through a chain of events, we felt called by God to plant a church in 2007. But I had to go through seminary first. Seminary typically takes four years in our tradition. And um, I can remember at least once a week opening the book of credits and figuring out how I could finish seminary quicker because I just wanted to plant this church. And I would think about it every week, okay, is there a way I can do this quicker? Can I add a class here? Can I do this there? And every week I thought about it over and over and over and over and over again. And finally, 2011 came, and actually I stood on this stage here and answered my uh, questions for ordination. <laughs> and um, you know what? It was great, but it wasn't the panacea I thought that it would be. Right? And, and that's what this passage has to say to us. And friends, I do want to tell you that even though this is uh, bleak and uh, maybe a little depressing, I hope that you'll listen until the end because I do believe that God has some good news for us today. So what I want to do is I want to try to trace out the argument of the passage and I want to try to encourage you and ask you to face it head on with no fear because our, as, as uh, we heard about in our worship that was so wonderful this morning, God is a good God, and he has good things for us. Uh, but one, part of what he does is he wants us to face uh, the realities that we do uh, live in. So the simple message of this chapter is that life is futile, 
right? So this, this word vanity of vanities is, you know, not something we maybe use in our everyday language, but the simple message of the preacher here is that life is futile. What do, what do I mean by that? What does he mean by that? Well, at the core of this concept of biblical futility, to understand why and in what way the Bible says that life is futile, the overarching message of that is that life is futile because death is guaranteed, right? So for example, I, I stood on this stage two months ago and I preached uh, to you Romans chapter eight, verses 21 and following, which are, I think, the best verses in all of Holy Scripture. But what did it say? It said, the creation has been subjected to futility, right? That's, that was the message of the best verses in all of Scripture, right? Start off by saying that. The creation has been subjected to futility. And if you're wondering, well, what does that mean and how does it work? The answer is that no matter what you do, right, no matter what you do, no matter what you accomplish, no matter how many churches you plant or how many children you have or, or how good your life is, how noble, how generous, how virtuous, you are going to die one day, right? And not only that, what, what Solomon brings out in here, verse 11, you will not be remembered, right? That's what he's saying, and, you know, and if you think about it, right, I heard a pastor preaching on this, preaching on this pastor asked this question. He said, how often do you think about your great-grandparents, right? Do you even know their names, right? They, they had a life just like yours, and many of you don't even know their names, right? And you don't know very much about them. And, and maybe you do, perhaps you're an exception, but then what about your great-great-grandparents? Do you know their names? Do you know what they did? Do you know what they enjoyed? Do you know the struggles that they faced? Do you know what they accomplished? You know, and what, what he's saying here is that there's no remembrance. And what's remarkable is that Solomon is one of the outliers, actually, right? Because we are remembering him in this moment, right? He's someone that was so extraordinary in so many ways. You know, in this book, if you read in this book, um, it does get better, by the way. Like, a little, little tip to go on and, and continue in the wisdom literature. But he was one of the outliers. He was one of the people who is remembered, right? Who accomplished so much that folks are still talking about him. But he says here, he says, we're not remembered uh, in a way that gives our lives the meaning we think that it will. So that's part of, uh, I want to walk through kind of just his argument. So that's his simple message. Life is futile. And why is it futile? Well, uh, the first thing he says in verse 3, he says, what does a man, man gain by all his toil at which he toils? And that's the first part of the message, which is that the things that we work for, right? If you're working hard, the things that we work for do not live up to the expectation that we have of them, right? So if you're working, for example, to retire early, you know, he's saying that if you meet that goal, it's not going to be what you think it will be. Right? It's not going to give you what you think it will give you. Why? Because you're going to eventually go into your grave and all of, the, all of that you've saved is going to go to other folks. And in fact, that's, he will actually make that point in chapter 2 uh, if we get there. So that's the first point he says is that 
the, the things that you're working for, they don't give you the gain that you think that they will give you. That's the first thing. Toil does not produce gain. The second point, as we said, is that the world goes on without us. You know, and that's a little bit mysterious here. He's like, think about, think about uh, precipitation. He's like, you know, the, the, water, the rivers are all flowing into the seas, but they never run out of water. You know, and I think what he's doing is he's comparing the shortness of a human life to the almost seemingly infinite nature of the world that we inhabit. Right? He's saying the world that we inhabit, it's going to be just fine. It's going to keep going on no matter what you do. The water will go from one place to another, and the seas will continue to circle around, and the sun will rise and fall. And you, on the other hand, you will be a very brief uh, whisper compared to the time that the earth will occupy. So that's the second thing that he says. The world goes on without you. The third thing he says, as we mentioned, he says the eye is not satisfied with seeing and the ear is not satisfied with hearing. And we already discussed that, that the things that we long for are not the panacea that we think that they will be. And then he goes on in verse 13 to up the ante a little bit, right? And this is what he says. He says, you know, he acknowledges God. He's not godless, by the way, right? This man is not godless. He says, the business that God has given us is an unhappy business. Do you hear that? That's what he says. Verse 13, don't take my word for it. I applied my heart to seek and search out all that is done under heaven. And the summary, we, F at Phoenixville, we would call this the Darren summary because I would summarize long conversations with like one sentence. The summary of it is, it's unhappy. God has given us an unhappy business. And then to round out our <laughs> depressing introduction here, in verse 18, what does he say? He says, even in wisdom, even in wisdom, there is much sorrow. And friends, if you know the story of Solomon, you know, he was honored by the Lord in a way that was really unparalleled in, in Scripture because he was kind of given, you know, kind of given his one wish, right? We think about the story of the genie. If you could ask for one thing from a magic genie, what would it be, right? And Solomon actually says, he says, one thing I want is I want wisdom. And the scripture honors him as really the pinnacle of wisdom. And what does he say? He says, even in searching for wisdom, there's sorrow, right? The, the world is a bleak place. So what do, we, what do we do with that, and how do we live in response to that? So let's talk about a couple ways we might live in response to that. So one way that you might live in response to this, and, and Solomon will get into this a little bit, is you might say, you know what, Darren, we agree. The world is futile. The things that we think will satisfy us won't, in fact. So we're just going to find whatever sliver of pleasures that we can here in food, in drink, in sex, and we're just going to give ourselves to those to have some sort of enjoyment in this existence that we live, right? That would be a hedonist response. So that's one response. Another response is what I would call the virtuist, which is we're going to make the world a better place, right? We're going to, you know, fix uh, global warming. We're going to work for peace. We're going to work for humanitarian causes. Um, and, you know, what Solomon, I think, would say about that is, 
uh, he doesn't go there, honestly enough. Like in, in this entire passage, and I think if you read in the entire book, he doesn't go there as an answer, which is interesting. So um, what, what might you do? Well, I would actually suggest to you the most common response to this that I have experienced myself and that I have seen in the church and the world, the most common response to this message is, you know what? I'm going to distract myself. I'm going to try to not think about it. Right? I'm going to become so busy with so many responsibilities. I'm going to fill up my calendar so that I don't have to think about this reality. Right? That's what, that's what we often do. You know, it's interesting. I really appreciate it. Um, not very studied in philosophy, but if, if you've ever read The Existentialists, uh, particularly Jean-Paul Sartre, right, that was essentially, I think, the message of his novel, Nausea. He's like, we distract ourselves with responsibilities and activities so that we don't have to think about these depressing things. And so that is actually a common response that Solomon, you know, as he writes this book and as God includes this in Holy Scripture, he's saying, this is not an option for a Christian. You cannot do this. You cannot live this way. You have to think deeply about these things. So what is the Christian answer to this message? If there is one, what is the answer? Well, I'm going to give you a couple from Ecclesiastes itself. And then I'm going to give you, I think, the final answer, which is actually not found in Ecclesiastes, but is pointed to by it. So let me suggest a couple things. If, if, uh, and, and I'm going to read references that you can look up later if you'd like to, or you can follow along now if you have a Bible. In chapter 2, he says this. Chapter 2, verse 24, he says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? And that, you know, I want you to think about this carefully, because what he's saying is he's saying this is an unhappy existence, but God has designed pleasures and joy for you to have in the midst of this experience. He has designed for you good things, and what the Christian should do is the Christian should recognize those good things and should enjoy them and should give thanks. Should enjoy and give thanks. And you know, friends, that is actually one of the things that I've been thinking deeply about in this passage is, you know, to be a Christian, to walk in this world, one of the ways that you evidence your, your faith and your trust is you enjoy you say, you know what, I'm going to recognize that when God gives us slivers of good things, that I enjoy them. And I think, by the way, that when you think about your multi-year goals, right, and many of these are wonderful things, right, having children, you know, getting married, right, I don't want to rain on that parade, but what I want to say is that you need to learn how to enjoy those things, right, because if you think about them in the wrong way, you will be disappointed, but if you learn to recognize the hand of God in the midst of a broken world, one of the ways that you know that that's happening is that you can enjoy, that you can take pleasure, right? That when you have those moments, you know, and in your mind, these are the panacea for my life. They are not the panacea, but they are to be enjoyed deeply. And that's what, one of the things Solomon says. Is he says, you know, when you're going to work, 
Look for ways that God is going to give you pleasure in the midst of that work. You're successful in creating something. Take a moment and thank the Lord. Take a moment and give thanks and take a moment and enjoy. That's the first thing he says in chapter two. Um, and chapter three, he's gonna repeat it. He says, I perceive there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And then thirdly, in chapter three, he says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to the one, woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against the one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You know what he's saying there? He's saying in the midst of this world, in the midst of this brokenness, one of the things that God has given us that should be enjoyed so much is community, is friendship, is marriage, is family. So like as you go through earth, as you worship our God together, do you recognize the gift he has given you in other people? That is one of the things that he breaks through this difficult hard world, and he says, I'm going to give you something, and that is one another. That is your spouse. That is your son or your daughter. That is your brother and sisters that are sitting around you right here in this room. Take a moment and give thanks for those things. Now, thank you for this water. I forgave this to me, my assistant here. Now, that I think is to a certain degree a lot of what Solomon says. And, you know, if you're reading through Ecclesiastes, as I did um, earlier this year, I think that if you read through Ecclesiastes, the, you'll find that by the end of the book, you're a little disappointed, to be honest, right? And again, Darren, like, one of the things that I do is I, want, I don't want to give you pat Christian answers. That's my goal. So if you want that, sorry about that. Complain to Robbie and maybe he'll, you know, not let me come back or something. Right? I don't want to give you pat Christian answers. If you read through the whole book of Ecclesiastes, you will find this, this problem that there isn't really a really good answer for the problems that he raises. So how do we address that? Well, uh, one of the things that I noticed in here that I want to draw your attention to is uh, some of the language here. <clears throat> he says, <clears throat> there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing is happening that's new. Uh, the crooked cannot be made straight. And you know, it's interesting because as you turn in Scripture to later writings, for example, uh, one of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament is Isaiah 43. Uh, in 43 verse 19, this is what God says. He says, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? <clears throat> and he says, I will make a way in the wilderness I will make rivers in the desert. This is something absolutely brand new that hasn't happened before. And you notice here about saying the crooked cannot be made straight. In the same passage, he will say, I'm going to make crooked things become straight. John the Baptist, that was the heart of his message as he quotes this chapter from Isaiah. He says, what you, John, what are you doing here? Darren summary, 
I'm making crooked things straight. I am declaring something new. And friends, what, it, what I want to show you from this is that this passage and this book is setting up the problem of a feudal existence characterized by death, and it's saying, you need a way to overcome death. That's what you need. That is what you long for, what you think you long for in your mind, right? Those things are not the panacea for your life, but what you actually, truly, ultimately long for, and you try desperately to distract yourself. You try pleasures, you try responsibilities, you try busyness, you try schedules, but what you actually long for at the heart of your being is to find a way to escape death. And friends, the message of Holy Scripture that will come after this book is that God will say, I have an answer to futility. And his name is Jesus Christ. He has come to live the feudal existence that you live where he did everything right. He did everything good. He lived the virtuous life. He was always kind. He was always compassionate. He was always patient. He was always righteous. And yet, he experienced the futility of death. So that for you, if you are in Christ this morning, or if you will decide to become in Christ this morning, that this life that we live is only an introduction to what God is going to do in and through you for an infinite number of years. And if you embrace that this morning, if you embrace that this morning, you can enjoy your life in ways that you may have never experienced. You can find yourself saying, this is a hard world. This is a world where people die. I mean, our bunnies were beheaded by a fox a couple weeks ago. <laughs> it was horrifying. You know, we didn't know about the chicken wire on top, by the way. Free tip from the pastor. If you have bunnies outside, put chicken wire on top. You know, um, yeah, this is a hard world. That was sad, right? You know, and there, there, are, there are sorrows in this world. You know, we lose... We lose people that we care about, right? We have relationships that are never repaired, right? But the Christian can say, you know what? God is at work in the midst of this feudal world, and I recognize him, and I give thanks for him. I become more joyful. I become more thankful, and I set my hope on the age that is to come. And by the way, if that's true, you begin to look at your work in the church differently, Right? You begin to look at the way that you respond to your brother and sister when they're going through a difficult time, and you say, I want to be with you, I want to be close to you, I want to be present with you. Why? Because I am living out the word of Christ in such a way that it will matter eternally. There will be remembrance of this eternally. Right? There will be a time, I believe, that if you were in Christ, that in the age to come, you may look back on today and say, do you remember when God did that in our family? Do you remember when God healed this relationship? Do you remember that when I came to faith, when I said, you know what, God, I don't want to live a distracted life. I don't want to live an existentialist life. I don't want to live a life simply about pleasure or simply about virtue. I want to live in Christ. You will remember that. There will be remembrance of that in the age to come. So friends, the simple message that I have for you, through Christ, may you find real substance in this difficult world. Let me pray for you.
Father God, we, we love you and we praise you. And Lord, we do pray that you would uh, speak uh, to us, speak through these words, break through the barriers that we erect. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has loved us. Would you turn our lives upside down, I pray, in this season? Would you give us good things? Would you give us grace to recognize you? Would you give us real friendship and family and community? And Lord, would you give us remembrance in the age to come? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.